One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Horticulture Week podcast. I'm Horticulture Week editor Matthew Appleby and today I'm with Fargro MD Richard Hopkins. Now with more than the 75 year experience of supporting growers, Fargro have developed deep knowledge and expertise across every horticulture sector. Now Fargro offers efficient delivery of growing media materials and equipment and advice on increasing yields, protecting your plants from pests, having access to the latest horticultural services and solutions, and um, also flexible financial and energy services. So Fargo, very well-known name in the industry. And there's been big changes over the last year, hasn't there, Richard? What's what's been happening at Fargo? Hi there, Matt. Absolutely. The history of Fargo dates back 75 years, and so most of that, we were a cooperative, uh, as indeed many of the sort of um, similar wholesalers were, um, but last year, last May, uh, we did a management buyout. So the company demutualized in 2007, but we still had over 300 shareholders who were the cooperative members, pretty much. Uh, and we did a management buyout backed with a private equity partner. That was in May. And the reason for doing that was we needed to be sure we could uh, prepare for the changes that are going to happen in horticulture. It's actually quite a fast moving industry and we need to be agile and ready to adopt all the changes and even lead some of those changes. And we felt it was time that the, the shareholders who stood by us for generations, some of them, uh, gave them an opportunity to realise their investment and gives us the agility and the funding to do some new things in the future. Oh, well, it certainly seems to have worked out. Oh, you've had some um, very good results recently. I think the industry as a whole has benefited from from COVID, um, you know, everyone stuck at home, not being able to go abroad on holidays, looking after their gardens. Uh, and we definitely saw that in 2020 and, and last year as well. Uh, this year's also is, is looking very positive. We're only just starting the summer. We'll see whether the weather, weather holds. But I think the, the figures that the HDA gave on, was it 3 million new gardeners or something like that? Let's hope they all stick with it for uh, a few more years. 
those new gardeners, they're very keen on the environmental side of gardening and the environmental footprint of growing. That's a big thing to look at in the future. And that's something which um, Fargo has certainly been working hard on, the area of sustainability. So just broadly speaking, in terms of sustainability, what, what is Fargo doing looking to the future? There are a couple of ways of looking at sustainability. As, as, a, as a general sort of macro view, as a business, we're trying to do things uh, in an environmentally friendly way as possible by encouraging growers to use biopesticides rather than traditional chemistry, using integrated pest management. These are all positive uh, ways of growing, which adds value to the grower, I believe. But of course, we are faced with legislation as well, and we're still waiting for the government to report on their peat consultation. But my view is that the, the growers are all making the move gradually now anyway. Um, there's been a, a big shift. We've seen that with, with a lot of our customers. But there are big challenges there. And the, the problem with sustainability is it's, it's a nuanced argument, as you know. But the trouble we suffer from is with a single issue pressure group or a lobbyist, they're only interested in, in one argument. And it's a sort of a, a ratchet process. So peat is one of those, I would say. It is possible to grow entirely peat free. But there are big challenges in that, and not just in the growing. You know, we've got experts helping um, growers with to get the, the best crop they can out of the peat-free growing media. But we've got competition over supply. So we're competing with biomass um, for, for wood fibre, for example. So we're not just competing within our own sector. We're competing generally within, with, with other industries, which means there's a shortage of materials and the cost of materials. Everyone's keen to make the move but it's not easy because there are these, these shortages and additional costs, which no one really wants to recognize. It will be interesting whether DEFRA give any kind of recognition to that, or they're entirely focused on a, a sort of stated mission, which is to get rid of peat. How much of a shift are you seeing at the moment? We're getting some very big growers who are committed to making changes to go uh, entirely peat-free within you know, a year or two, which is well ahead of the, the, the government stated objective. Some of them will have real challenges um, and will need, maybe need to have a peat mix or massively reduced quantities. We have to work out whether that's a, a viable solution, you know, whether that will be permitted. There's a quite a move at the moment to encourage the government not to use legislation, but to allow consumer pressure to drive this and allow everyone to be open and honest about what they're doing and the challenges they're facing. My fear is the government will will roll over from environmental pressure groups who have a case but it's the the alternatives are not entirely uh risk-free when it comes to sustainability there's huge amounts of coir being used we make sure we can trace the source of where that comes from but that certainly won't be true for every supplier because um, we're not just talking about within the uk we're talking about throughout europe as well that we're sort of leading the way in, in the move to peat free uh, wood fibre, there's no guarantee that's grown locally. It can be moved all around the world. So there are environmental challenges from that. It's actually quite high energy to change timber into, into fibre. That's the point I was making earlier, that these are sort of nuanced arguments that we kind of need to explain to the general public. Everyone wants to be seen to be doing the right thing, and the socially responsible consumer wants to be doing that. But just a sort of knee-jerk reaction is not always the best way. There's also nuanced arguments around 
chemical and crop protection um, in uh, growing. And there's quite a few changes going on there as well. So what's what's happening there? Targo, I believe, has the largest portfolio of biopesticides of any business in the UK. Now, that doesn't make it a very big portfolio, which in itself indicates how hard it is to get new products onto the market. I've not met or spoken to a grower who isn't interested in migrating away from traditional chemistry to, to biopesticides. So they're more environmentally friendly. Um, they don't persist in the environment. They tick all the boxes. The difficulty we have as an industry, in horticulture particularly, is the cost of getting these products onto the market. Every crop in horticulture is niche compared to broadacre um, grains, for example. So the proportional cost of bringing a product to market, which may only fit a niche sector, and it might be very niche within that sector if it's um, ornamentals, but even the, the bigger crops like soft fruit, they're considered to be relatively niche. We're only talking about hundreds of hectares, not tens of thousands of hectares, uh, which can be covered. So what I would like to see is a, is a change of the regime at CRD, which is the, the government body responsible for um, approvals of crop protection products, to have a mission to enable British horticulture to be the, the most sustainable, the most environmentally friendly, but economically competitive in a way that we've never been able to before. We, we are losing products at, a, at an increasing rate, and some of those are entirely justified. I won't, I won't defend that some of these products should, should not go. But what has to happen equally quickly, if not more quickly, is the approval system has to change to allow new products to come, come online. The tragedy is that I don't think there are any new products which emerge from British companies. Uh, they all come from overseas, often from very small companies. It's not the, the Bayers and the um, Cultivas who are on the leading edge of these, these new generations. They often buy the, the startup companies, but they're, they're not coming from within the UK. Now, that means their initial focus will inevitably be on their home market, whether that's the um, EU or the United States, uh, particularly, but uh, other parts of the world. And Britain is then seen as a, an, an outlier and not a particularly interesting market because you know, we're, we're one small country with a, a niche sector. Since Brexit, how, how does Britain fit in with all this? Have, have, have things changed in terms of what we can use compared to um, other countries? Is there a level playing field? Is there a level playing field? We haven't diverged significantly from uh, EU approval systems, but there is a the sort of public sector has fallen into its default position, which is gold plating. So what we see is where the EU wish to withdraw a product, so there's, a, there's potentially a negative effect, they will go, yes, we agree with that, we'll, we'll do that. But they won't take any positives from the EU where they're making approvals of products. They'll go, no, we have to approve that ourselves. So is it a level playing field? No. And that, that's what I'm, uh, I'm saying, that there needs to be a, a sort of complete cultural change. The fact that CRD sits under the health and safety executive the mindset's very much on, on human safety and environmental safety, which we all agree with. But there are no objectives in actually ensuring that products are available to grow crops safely. Now, you mentioned biopesticides, and there's lots of um, things going on in that area. So 
where are the biggest areas of development in biopesticides at the moment? There are a lot of products being researched and being trialled. People naturally chase the most damaging pests and diseases. So, you know, in soft fruit is, is one of the biggest horticultural crops. The, a powdery mildew is one of the most damaging. There are lots of people chasing those kind of, of areas. But I think what you see in biopesticides is they, they're, they're much more targeted. It's not a sort of um, spray once and it'll kill all, all the pests and all the diseases. Um, and you can walk away and go and have a cup of tea and come back and the, and the job's done. So people are developing um, products which are, are much more focused on, on individual pests and diseases. So it's, I don't think it's possible to say there's this sort of broad approach. It's a, it's a different industry. It's much more interesting, I think, and, and has a lot more opportunity. But it's uh, the gap which will emerge, which doesn't affect horticulture so much, but is in um, herbicides. Um, because obviously a lot of those are being withdrawn from the main market. So that will affect um, the, the field-grown horticulture to an extent for, for weed control. But yeah, that's a very difficult problem. Uh, I don't know whether anyone is working on a, a viable solution from that. Another uh, big area at the moment of change is energy and energy inflation as well. So what sort of challenges are you seeing at the moment? We are seeing big growers who have um, not planted um, in, uh, in horticultural crops, and that's on salads and, and fruit, because they, they have not been able to afford to heat it in the early part of the season. Obviously, that's not true when they're planting into polytunnels and things like that. So that, that is going ahead. We see there's a bit of a regional mix. The, in, the, in the southeast here, I think a lot of growers took advantage of grants for biomass and combined heat and power when those grants are available. Uh, so they've not been affected to quite the same degree. Other parts of the country where they've not invested, uh, they're, they're still reliant on oil or gas boilers. They've been hit really hard and will see production down in, in some parts of the country by 40 or 50% this year. What are we trying to do? You know, we're, we're trying to look at a sort of holistic approach. We've got a, um, a solution for uh, mini modular anaerobic digesters. Um, you know, AD is, plays a big role in high waste areas. You know, farming produces a lot of waste. Um, some of the, the packers of um, fruit and veg produce a lot of waste. Um, so they can keep anaerobic digesters running. But a lot of the other companies can't because they, they don't produce the biomass to go in them. So we're looking at these modular ADs, uh, which will work in smaller areas. So it will, it will help offset their other heating costs. And actually, in some cases, it means instead of paying someone to take waste away, they'll actually be able to generate some money from it. Oh, that sounds like a brilliant idea, the modular ADs. I, I love that one. But in, in terms of energy, what are you seeing in terms of prices? What sort of uh, increase is happening and how does that affect the growers? So what we're hearing... Um, it, is, is fairly mixed. I've been told that the supermarkets are being uh, a lot more understanding um, and actually because they are suffering from exactly the same um, price inflation and growers are having sensible conversations um, with the, through the retail chain saying these prices are going to have to go up to do that. I hope that is sustainable uh, because the, the risk is that products will just be sourced from overseas where it's not that they are, their energy costs are lower, but they just need less energy because they've got a better climate. So it's a knock-on effect long-term. You know, when, when inflate, people would expect a certain amount of inflation in, in goods and products at the moment, it's in the news. But at some point, um, retailers will go, do you know what, we can buy this 
cheaper from from elsewhere and that will then be very damaging for uk horticulture just to the point we're trying to from a sustainability point of view cut down food and flower miles um, prove that we're we're growing in a sustainable way through using peat free through using biocontrols and biopesticides so we're doing all the right things but the, the the cost of energy is can for some crops be such a significant factor that that could sort of scupper the whole enterprise and and force retailers to um, to look elsewhere for product. Looking ahead now, what what do you think the future looks like with all these challenges that are going on behind the scenes? Some businesses will thrive. We we are we are seeing that they've 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 made the investment early on. They've protected themselves to an extent from from energy costs. They run efficient businesses, and we'll see those growing. and And there will be more acquisitions. They'll need the space. They'll need the glass, uh, and they'll become uh, bigger and bigger businesses. The niche and specialist growers at the small end, I think they'll survive because they provide a, a valuable service. You know, people want those those specialist crops. It's the mid range, which is um, the one which is at risk, where uh, they they live a bit more hand to mouth. I think the the future should be good though, because the the macroeconomics of consumer demand for sustainable products. And I'm talking about ornamentals and and edibles here. We've got to promote that as an industry, and we've got to work with the retailers to promote that. That homegrown is a good thing. You know, it's travelled only a few miles. It's not been stuck in a in a, in a container or on a lorry for several days. Uh, we can grow things more efficiently here. Um, we are not a water-deprived nation. Um, some of it might be in the wrong place. That's a different discussion. But we we use far less water growing crops here than they do in Spain, for example, which, and where they do grow in Spain, they have water shortages. That's something which isn't costed in at the moment from a, from a consumer perspective. Maybe we should try and encourage that, that actually it is seen as, as a, a limited resource which we are we use very efficiently in this country, and actually we don't have a shortage of it. And the move to uh, away from um, meat-based diets can only help horticulture. And I think we it's it's championing that not not to the detriment of the um, uh, beef and dairy and sheep farmers, but it, it's it's complementary and it it all fits the environmental uh, message which the industry is in a really good position to to champion. Oh, brilliant. Now, uh, Richard, you spend your life in horticulture, but um, I imagine you get to go away on holiday occasionally. And uh, say you went on a holiday to a desert island. I don't know why you do that, but in Horticulture Week podcast land, that's what we ask. Any particular plant that you would take with you? What would be your favourite plant that you couldn't live without? Well, I've, I've thought of two things um, here, Matt, because obviously I, I, was, I was warned about this. and I don't know what this desert island is like. If it doesn't have date palms on it, I want a date palm, please. Um, the, the medjool dates are the really big ones. Um, but if it does have date palms, the, the plant I would take, because I think they're really beautiful, probably wouldn't survive, but it's snake's head fritillary. So I need a sort of a bit of uh, edge of nice woodland in order to plant those. I can watch the years go by waiting for my rescue as they come up once a year. Excellent. So you've got the whole of horticulture covered there, a bit of, bit of edibles, some trees, um, some ornamentals, just like what Fargrow does. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. What a great way to end. Well, I'm Matthew Appleby, Horticulture Week editor, and I've been with Richard Hopkins, the MD of Fargrow. So thanks very much to Richard. And once again, 
This is the Horticulture Week podcast. Make sure you never miss one. Subscribe to or follow Horticulture Week podcasts via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. Thanks to Richard. Thanks to Fargo and goodbye. 